Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nor as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, have you heard that all across America, as we approach and get into summer, that stadiums, stadiums are heating up way more than usual? Oh, why is that? It's because there are no fans. <laughs> It's stupid, but it's true. There are no fans. (laughs) The Premier League is back on TV. And, you know, I've been a fan of Liverpool Football Club for most of my life. And I got to see Liverpool play for the first time in 97 days yesterday. It was a nil-nil draw. And it was as dull as a football game can possibly be. And yet (laughs) I felt unadulterated joy the entire time. I realized that it was the first time I'd felt like complete mindless joy in 97 days. I'm very happy for for you. Was it weird with no screaming? Well, they pipe in fake crowd noise into the TV broadcast. Which, just like, but but not like, whoa, or like that, right. like it's laugh not, track? It, it's not like perfectly timed, but sometimes they do attempt, like when the referee <laughs> makes a, a dubious decision. <laughs> really? They, yeah, they attempt to have like a mm, boo, but it's, <laughs> it's always a little too late. Like I'm imagining that there's somebody playing right. a keyboard, each of which has a different crowd sound, mm-hmm. but the person's just like watching the game on like a four second delay. So, right. yeah, it's not quite working for me yet, but I'll tell you what, That's when hilarious. Hank, I know that this podcast is not primarily about football, but I just want to tell yes. you that if and when Liverpool win their first English Premier League title and their mm-hmm. first title in 30 years, I had imagined that moment so many times. And I'd imagine <laughs> being at the Union Jack pub with all of the members of the Liverpool Indianapolis community. And I'd imagined being at Anfield, watching it happen live. And I'd imagined it in every conceivable place except for alone <laughs> in my basement, which is where yeah. I am going to actually be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll have like a single champagne popper and it'll be like 
Pew. Hey, we did it. But let's uh, do some questions, John. Do you want to answer some questions? I do. Okay. I do. For a little bit of background, but before we go into the questions from our listeners, I think it's important to note that Hank and I had to talk to each other on the phone for 25 minutes just to get ourselves <laughs> into a headspace <laughs> where we thought yeah. we could make this podcast and laugh and have a good time. Or... So. What passes for a good time these days? Hank, with our first question today, we're going to return to your book, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, which comes out July 7th, (laughs) with this question from Emma, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my birthday is coming up on July 7th, the same day as Hank's new book, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, comes out. And I know I won't be able to celebrate as usual. I know Hank recently celebrated a socially distant birthday, and I was wondering if you have any ideas on how I could celebrate my birthday from home. Of course, I will be reading Hank's book and watching Vlogbrothers live on YouTube at 7 p.m. Eastern time with special guest John. Birthdays and books, (laughs) Emma. (laughs) Well, we'll try to do a special shout out to you, Emma. Yeah. Thank you for, for being there. Um, also thank you for the plugs. My socially distant birthday was really fantastic. Um, and I wasn't able to gather with all of my friends. So Catherine collected messages from all of my friends and put them all in one place in, in an audio format. It's basically a podcast of my friends telling me why they like me, which I should listen to every day. And Emma, maybe you should nudge somebody in your life to ask them to do (laughs) the same thing. Or in lieu of that, just do it yourself. That's okay. It's still nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, hey, my birthday's coming up. It's going to be a weird one. Send me an audio message of why I'm good. (laughs) Or, you know, constructive ways that I could improve. (laughs) Maybe not as much of that. Yeah. So Alice has had a socially distant birthday party. It was a little bit of a bummer, but Alice enjoyed it. She's much more adaptable than her dad. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to remember this as a weird time, Emma, and you're going to remember this as a weird and difficult birthday, and that's okay. It's hopefully not going to be the last birthday you have, and hopefully you'll be able to look back on this and be like, oh, thank God that ended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully it will be something that you uh you remember because it was different and I think that that is often the case when you know when things are as expected they make a little bit less of an impression. But even if things are good but in a different way, they can they can stick with us for longer. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that Hank because it occurs to me that I don't really remember many of my birthdays at all and the ones I do remember are the ones where something unusual happened, but in my case it was usually terrible. Like my 39th birthday for instance, I went go-karting, which was my first mistake. And uh, then, of course, my second mistake was that I got a, a, a displaced fracture of my ribs from a go-karting accident. Yeah, I remember you going to this go-karting place and I was like, that looks cool. And then I looked at it and I was like, that looks like not, oh, that was, looks like not very, really what yeah. I imagine is go-karting. It's two-story, it like multi-levels. Yeah. yeah, it's hardcore go-karting. And I got into a, a fairly serious accident But I thought I was okay. It's just I happened to go to the doctor two days later for something else. And he noticed me get up on the examination table very gingerly. And Mm -hmm. then he touched touched it. And he was like, your rib is very broken. (laughs) And you should go to the emergency department right now. It might be stabbing you in the liver. Oh, my God. Which it wasn't, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. But 
Ugh. I was able to repurpose all of that uh, in my novel Turtles All the Way Down. Yeah. Yeah. John, you you seem to... It doesn't go great when you race. That's true. The other time that I, I raced a car... It caught on fire. And this is like the only times, right? Like, uh, you, I don't like imagine you as a racer. I do a fair amount of go-kart really? riding, driving. What oh do you call God. it? Yeah. We're, we're brothers and I don't even really know this. Well, about I mean, I do live in the racing capital of the United States, Hank. Mm, yes, that's true. Uh, yes, that, that other time when your car caught on fire, but they had told you before your car caught on fire yeah. that if you crash, just wait and someone will help get you out of the car. Yeah. And so your car caught on fire, but you, being yeah. you, were like, I will continue to follow instructions and just sit here. Yeah. Which, to be <laughs> fair, they did come and get me. You know, Hank, instead of focusing on all the times that I was a bad race car driver, can we not focus on the time when I was a really good race car driver, when I drove the pace lap for the Indianapolis Grand Prix and I didn't get into a car accident? And then yeah. the, the very next week, the pace car driver at the very next race, like slammed into the wall and, and they had to like stop the race for an hour. Can we focus oh, on God, that? Oh God, that's so embarrassing. The time well, when you did this, when you said you were doing that, I was like, John, what are you thinking? This never goes well for you. <laughs> I was so, I've never been as nervous as I was driving that pace car. It was not a pleasant experience. Not least because one of the IndyCar drivers, the person who was who had the pole position, Simone Paginot, he mm -hmm. was like riding up against my bumper and he kept like, then he would slow down and he would go back to tailgating me. But like, uh. it's a totally different level of tailgating when you're talking about professional race car drivers. Like tailgating yeah. for them is being one inch behind the bumper. <laughs> and I was taking it very personally as I do when I get tailgated. And I was like, listen, Simone Paginot, they told me to drive 72 miles an hour and I am driving se 72 miles an hour. And if you think I'm going to speed up just because... <laughs> You're not happy with with the tire pressure or whatever. You've got another think coming. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You show him, and he's probably like has no idea he's even doing it. Exactly. He's probably like a solid, a solid like five times his comfortable distance. Totally. So I actually saw him like months later, and I was like, mm -hmm. "Boy, you were really like really real close in my rearview mirror," and I I felt like it was a little extreme. And he was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't really remember that. <laughs> but that's what he would say. That's what he would say. <laughs> He's a very nice guy, actually. <laughs> okay. I think we, uh, what was, what yeah. was the question? Oh, yeah, you're going to have a great know. birthday, Emma. Drive a pace car. Go race. This next question comes from Maggie, who asks, Dear Hank and John, one expression my mom uses all the time is the phrase bone dry. Yeah. I don't know why so many things are that dry in your home. I don't understand this, mainly because aren't our bones in our bodies? Wouldn't they be like full of fluids? Aren't they wet? Can you get back to me? Stay safe, Maggie. I love, could you get back to me? Could you get back to me about this? It's like, yeah, thanks. That's, we try to occasionally do that. Um, and also, what I love about this question is how terrible it makes me feel about my bones. Yeah, they are just all inside of me, aren't they? So wet. Well, here's the thing, Maggie. They're moist now, <laughs> but a dryness is coming. <laughs> I, maybe. Depends on how. Like, I guess the idea is that if, like, the bone is out in the desert or the animal who died is out in the desert— 
and then the the bone eventually appears after being blasted by uh, sand and torn out by vultures, that eventually that bone will be very dry. But it doesn't seem like the default state for a bone. Well— Most bones aren't in the desert. <laughs> Quote me on it. So <laughs> Stitch it on a pillow. Yeah, so the actual etymology of the phrase bone dry is pretty interesting, not least because it's really new, and you would think that it would be old because mm. most mm-hmm. most bone-related things are old. <laughs> We've had them a long time, yeah. Yeah, but bone dry didn't appear in English until 1830. Oh, wow. And it is about the fact that if you leave a bone out in the sun, it will eventually become dry. But like... If you leave anything out in the sun, it will eventually become dry. <laughs> you know, you could say the same thing about like yeah, a pond. Yeah. <laughs> pond dry. You know pond how it dry. is. Pond dry. Or a sponge, you know, yeah, just like right. put it, yeah. This is as dry as a sponge. And it's like, well, it's, uh, bones are basically hard sponges. <laughs> Wet ones. I want to go back in time to before I knew about that. Hard, wet sponge. All right, let's move on to another question. This one from Gracie, who writes, Dear John and Hank, do all microwaves rotate in the same direction? Gracie. No. No, Gracie. In fact, my microwave rotates to the left half the time and to the right mm-hmm. the other half of the time. And I don't know why. Oh, I do. Oh, great. When the So when the motor g- does its little thing, yeah. um, when it stops, the... Yeah the the mechanism kind of like rests in the direction that it stopped in. Mm. And so a nicer microwave wants to have it rest um, not in the same way every time because oh. it rests against the mechanism in the same direction every time it wears faster in that direction. So basically it switches directions only so that the motor will be able to have a longer lifespan. And also I think that it uh, lets them use a slightly less expensive motor because it means that it will be able to, instead of like overcoming where it's already resting and pushing through that, move in the direction that it's not resting in. And that's actually less energy to move. So it's an engineering thing where they're able to make a cheaper, longer lasting microwave uh, as long as they have it move in different directions every time. That was actually fairly interesting. I always thought that it was a wind, unwind (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like there's a spring in there that if you keep going in the same direction, it's eventually be like, "Eh, I can't, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's disappointing. But I'm glad that I now know the facts there. You're settled. All right, Hank, we have another question. This one comes from Taylor, who writes, Dear John and Hank, we're all donating lots of money to cancer research funds. And I'm only 23. But so far as I'm aware, these fundraisers have been a thing for a while. Why haven't we cured cancer? (laughs) Oh, uh, just, uh, is that all? So, so Taylor, one of the things that we don't hear about that much, but is really important, is that the overall mortality rate from cancer is declining really dramatically and has been declining mm-hmm. dramatically throughout your lifespan. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of reasons for this. Research and better treatment is one reason. Um, another mm-hmm. reason is public health decisions. We tend to, like really undervalue the importance of public health in these conversations. But people choosing not to smoke cigarettes has been a a big mm-hmm. deal for yep. lower cancer rates and, and higher cancer survival. The other, the other important thing here, and we have a SciShow video about this if you want to watch it, but 
Cancer is not one disease, and like not even every lung cancer or breast cancer is the same as other lung or breast cancers. There are, and like the things that go wrong for cancer to happen are really varied, and some of them are fairly well studied, and we have ways to combat them, and some of them are still completely unknown. And part of the reason that they're unknown might be because they're more rare, so we haven't had the money to, to do the research. Part of it might be it's just more complicated and we haven't figured it out yet. And so like like and it tends to be that in order to get cancer you don't have to it's not like one thing went wrong usually there's you know a couple of genetic things that you're predisposed to a couple of genetic things that happened along the way maybe and like those things might be in in completely different parts of your body system so it might be one thing happened in your immune system that went wrong one thing happened over here in like your sort of like cell regulation systems one thing happened over here in and like your actual like the the tissue that was the sort of start of the cancer so it can be a, a bunch of different things and if we focus in on one of those things we can sort of carve out a whole section of cancer and improve mortality around that. But while cancers are spreading, they can they they sort of like find new mutations that might help them survive our treatments. So it's it's super complicated. And the amount of work that we have done in terms of cancer research is really amazing. Um, we have a long way to go. We also have a long way to go in increasing access to those treatments because they tend to be very expensive for the first 10 or 20 years after they're developed. And a lot of them, a lot of them are, are less old than that. So, uh, you know, like having that, uh, having that limited access is also a huge deal and something that we should be looking hard at. Yeah, I mean, the first person to get access to methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy drug that's been around for like 60 or 70 years, the first person to get access to that in Sierra Leone's Kono district got access to it last year. Yeah. So, so we, have a, we have a long way to go, both in terms of the discoveries that we need to make, but also in terms of the actual health consideration, mm -hmm. which is not about whether or not we figured something out. It's about whether or not we can distribute it widely and equitably. Yeah, and there are also cancers that are super treatable if you find them at the right time, and that's why screening is really important. I'm getting my colonoscopy in two months, so if you are if you are of the age, uh, make sure that you're getting your all of your correct cancer screenings because that is how we stick around for ourselves and our families. I had a great colonoscopy in February <laughs> before all of this started. Um, yeah, it was great. <laughs> I look back on that that time with a great deal of nostalgia. It's very hard for me not like most most of the time when my brain is doing nostalgia, I can say like, you know what brain, the old days weren't that good. Like, oh, 1990, it was so wonderful. I was 12 years old and blah 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 blah. Yeah, except that like the chances of getting murdered in the United States were literally twice as high in 1990 than they are today. Like most yeah. of the time I can tell myself a story that helps me to understand mm -hmm. that, that my urge to sentimentalize the past is misplaced. Right. But that colonoscopy in February of 2020 really was as good <laughs> as it gets. <laughs> this is the peak. This is the, the, the peak for John Green. <laughs> it was, it's right at the top. Peak. Peak John Green right there. That not, moment. Not just peak John Green. I want to be clear. That was the peak. <laughs> like February 12th, 2020. Oh, no. Was the best moment of human history. Okay. All right, John, this next question comes from Adam, who asks, Dear Hank and John, 
I'm considered an essential worker in my job doing maintenance for dorms and office buildings at my university. The offices have been empty for a couple of months due to COVID, but I have taken it upon myself to water all of the abandoned office plants during my lunch break. What I want to know is... Are those plants mine now? They only survived due to my labor and clearly have neglectful parents. So is it incorrect for me to appropriate them? (laughs) (laughs) I actually want a real economist to answer this question for me. Like like a plant is a living thing. Yeah. And so... So there's the plant, and I think that you might own the plant, but I worry that you don't own the pot yet. Um, so <laughs> yeah, you might not own the dirt that the plant is growing in. You might yeah. only own the plant. And I'm not even totally sure that you own the plant. I think it depends on the context oh, in yeah. which the plant was abandoned. Mm-hmm. Because right. if you got like two days notice that the office mm-hmm. will be closing on Friday and you didn't take home your office plants, that's on you. Like you consigned those plants to yeah. almost certain death. If on the other hand, you had like 30 seconds warning and they were like, everybody has to leave the office right now, then maybe the, that's still your plant and you're just very grateful to the person who's taking mm-hmm. care of it in the meantime. Right, right. And you've been thinking this whole time, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I can't save my plant. Or how I miss Sam so much because I assume that people name their plants. Right. But in any case, the plants are grateful that they are not dead. So thank you for doing that work, whether they are your plants or not. Which reminds me that this podcast is brought to you by plants. Plants. There are so many of the different things on the planet. And they are genuinely essential. It's weird that we don't have more corporate sponsors that are just things that we really need. Like this podcast is Mm -hmm. brought to you by iron. Mm -hmm. Iron. Yeah. It courses through your blood and allows you to survive. (laughs) But that's not our second sponsor, of course. Our second sponsor is microwaves that go in both directions. Microwaves that go in both directions. (laughs) They're slightly more efficient, maybe. And this podcast is also brought to you by Simone Pagino. He's a driver of a car. I and mean, he's he... a former Indianapolis 500 winner, Hank. Okay. Uh, yes. It's brought to you by him. He tailgates too much. Well, I think he tailgates probably the right amount. He's a very good driver. By the way, Hank, <laughs> you should Google Simon Pagino so that you can see the extent to which he looks exactly like Ali G's character in Talladega Nights. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> they really, they really got him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they essentially stole both his likeness and his accent for that role. <laughs> but he is a lovely person. Uh, yeah. And also, today's podcast is brought to you by Dry Bones. Dry Bones, everybody's least favorite Mario Kart driver. Never even tried. Never even tried to use Dry Bones. Hasn't happened a single time. My entire Mario Kart life. Look, I've been playing Mario Kart for 32 years. I've played as Luigi the whole time. When I play as anyone other than Luigi, all it makes me feel is that I miss Luigi. Yeah. I have the same experience with Donkey Kong. Oh, God. Donkey Kong's terrible, but we don't have to I know, but I learned how to play Mario Kart as Donkey Kong, and I can't play as anybody else. That's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
I only know how to play this game with terrible handling and very slow acceleration. Yeah, but I can knock into you with no problems <laughs> and I will not change direction. That's true. That's true. We also have a Project for Awesome message to read from Pierre and Christina who write a message from our past selves. Today is the day. You have to jump in the ocean today. It may be oh, wow. inconvenient and you may have work. <laughs> <laughs> but you have made a commitment for the day this podcast airs. Oh, I hope it's not winter. Uh, well, we waited until after the solstice. We did it. Perfect. Pierre and Christina, it's not winter as long as you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Yes. But I don't know that it's going to be super easy to jump in the ocean today. But yeah, I, I think you'll find a spot. I think past y'all may have failed to account for certain <laughs> variables. But I think you can do it. I believe in you. Yeah, you weren't alone in that, at least. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system. But there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health, and you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say doc, ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. Oh, God. That's, ain't that the truth? This next question comes from Meredith, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my Anthropocene Reviewed mug is probably my favorite mug right now, but it's I do have mug. one possible, possible issue with it. I drink a lot of tea, so although it's technically a coffee mug, it very rarely has coffee in it. What exactly makes a mug a coffee mug? Is it weird that I drink tea from a mug with a review of coffee mugs on it? Cups and Curiosities, Meredith. So I'm very fond of the fact that the Anthropocene Reviewed has only released one piece of merch, and it's a coffee mug that contains my review of coffee mugs that you can read nowhere except on the coffee mug. It makes me very happy. <laughs> it's my favorite thing that yeah. we've yeah, ever done. Good. But I failed to foresee, of course, Meredith's problem, which many other people have emailed me about, which is that it's weird to drink tea from a mm -hmm. mug that announces itself very loudly as a coffee mug. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay, Meredith. I, I think it's okay. Fine. I think... Yeah. What it... it yeah, sometimes... It, 
it turns out that I was not doing a good job of imagining coffee mugs complexly mm. and understanding that they have many different functions. For example, my Anthropocene-reviewed coffee mug is sometimes an ice cream holder. Yeah, uh, this is the thing. Like, do I sometimes, like, wipe things that aren't dishes with a dish towel? I do. Right. Do I sometimes use a stack of books as a tripod? I do. There. This is it's the, the human ingenuity. And the reason why we call it a coffee mug in America is because we're coffee people. Yeah. But we don't have to be coffee people. America is full of diverse uh, takes and appreciations for different things. And so we should, we should be open to the fact that our coffee mugs are going to be used for various things. And I sometimes drink water out of them. So there's that. Maybe I should. I don't know why. Make a Candy. tea mug that contains my review of tea. <laughs> my hope is that tea is just as delicious as coffee is when drunk with the Anthropocene reviewed mug mug. Yes. You should have had it just be a review of mug mugs. This next question comes from TQ, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I have a baby sister who's at the stage of learning her ABCs, so naturally the ABC song is played mm-hmm. almost constantly in my house, which has made me wonder, why does the order of the alphabet matter? Like, I, mm. I guess it makes it easier for children to memorize the alphabet, but other than that, the order of the letters has no significance to how we use the English language. For example, the fact that C comes after B doesn't change the way that we speak or write. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely true. But there are all kinds of reasons why it is helpful to have an order to the alphabet. The first one you have identified, which is that it's easier to remember the alphabet if we have an order to it. The second is that uh, you need to look things up in an order sometimes, and alphabetically is a really good way to do that. This, these things are so useful that the alphabet has remained in alphabetical order for longer than any individual word has existed. Really? Yes. Wow. Isn't that a wild notion? Yes. That is a little mind-blowing. I did a Vlogbrothers video about this at one point in the last 15 years. Well, I forgot about it. (laughs) That said, I would argue that while alphabetizing things is still really important and really useful, it is less important than it was certainly when I was a kid. Well, yeah, now you have records and you can order them any way you want to. You can do it alphabetically or by size or by color. And like you could like, you know, just change the little thing in the database. But, you know, sometimes we still have physical objects that need to be ordered in a way. Yeah. So I think alphabetizing remains important. I I do think it's an interesting question how important alphabetizing will be in like 100 years, because it, it, it will be probably less significant than it is right now. And people might find it weird. I was thinking when I was reading this question, in 200 years, are people going to have to like learn the alphabet as adults so that they will be able to like go back and read the dictionaries that we wrote? Oh, well, I mean, can they can, are you asking if they will be able to read or if they will know? The, no, of course, they'll be able to read. Is. I'm saying that, that okay. they won't they won't necessarily learn. They won't have the mm-hmm. same need to learn the alphabet right. in the same order that we've learned it, or at least that need won't be as acute in 100 years, I don't think. But then again, I am terrible at predicting the future. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, Orin Green is still singing Humpty Dumpty. I think that we're going to, we're still going to have that song and it'll still be part of the learning process. I think, like, I think that alphabetical order is maybe the most concrete uh, item of culture that will, that will last through the millennia. No, that's an exaggeration and you know it. (gasps) What else? 
the most concrete item of culture that will last for millennia. TikTok? (sighs) (laughs) I was going to say Hamlet, but yeah, no, it might be TikTok. (laughs) I can't wait for the first like full cast TikTok version of Hamlet. I don't really know how to pull that off, but we'll figure it out. John, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, this question comes from Joseph, who asks, Dear Hank and John, we have all heard time and time again that we should not waste water. What does that mean exactly? I have a friend who says that that's not a real thing because of the water cycle. I'm sure it has basis in truth, though. What is it, and why should we not waste water? Joseph. First, Joseph, I love your instinct that somebody who is in in a position of knowing about this stuff is probably right, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask the question and wonder why that is. And the answer, of course, is that it's true that we don't like eject water out of the atmosphere and remove it (laughs) into space. Right. Like we don't remove water from the hydrological cycle by using it. That is true. It is also true that it requires a tremendous amount of energy to make water clean and to Mm -hmm. get water to the places where we want it to be. So what we're really trying to save is the energy that we use to create clean safe water, right? Yes, that's a big that's a big piece of it and in certain places that that amount of energy is much higher than other places. So if you live in a place that has a lot of water, that number is lower. If you live in a place that does not, it's much higher. There are also places where there is actually a limited amount of fresh water and we are pumping it out of aquifers faster than the aquifers are replenishing. So these are like giant underground lakes, basically. And we're pumping water out of the lakes faster than the lakes are filling back up. So eventually, that water will not be one of the ways that we can get water. And there are other ways to try and get water. If you're near the ocean, you can try and take the salt out of the water, but that's extremely energy intensive. You can move the water from where it is to places where it isn't. It also uses a tremendous amount of energy. So uh, this question is different in different places, but in general, a lot of work and energy uh, goes into moving a fairly finite resource, which is clean, fresh water, which, you know, there's certainly lots of water in the world, but there isn't uh, an infinite amount, uh, and there is definitely not an infinite amount of fresh water, you know, and and if you we really do use more than we have access to or there's a long drought, and so the places where we get the water, either rivers or aquifers, start not being the place where we can, places where we can turn to, then you have to solve that problem in really big and kind of intense ways that involve rationing water, pulling back on some agriculture, actually having people leave the areas where they are or moving the water from places where it is hundreds and hundreds of miles through pipelines uh, in a way that is extremely energy intensive. So it's a big, big question, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in short, let's try to minimize our use of water, especially potable water. That's why I like to bring up all of the water I use to water my plants from the White River. (laughs) It's a lot of night. You you can still you can do organic gardening, but but still have all the benefits of pesticides. Because they're in the river. That's right. It comes uh, it comes pre roundup. That's the great thing about the water 
in the White River. It's already got all of the fertilizer in it from the poop, the the human feces that have been <laughs> placed directly into the river system. Um, what were we talking about? Right, the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. All right, Hank, it's time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I'll start. AFC Wimbledon are building their new stadium that hopefully they will be able to move into for the start of the 2020-2021 season. Now, of course, we don't know what the world is going to look like in August, or for that matter, July, <laughs> but but they are currently building the stadium, and there's going to be three temporary stands around three sides of the field, and then one permanent stand, and they've just hmm. released like what it's all going to look like. And it's kind of a blue and yellow speckle along the three temporary uh-huh, uh-huh. stands. And then it's going to be blue, except in yellow is going to be written the Dons on seats, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of conversations about how people feel about the speckling. I saw on Twitter, one person wrote <laughs> in reply to the speckling, democracy doesn't work, <laughs> which I thought was a little <laughs> bit of an overreaction. <laughs> I'm not ready to give up on the idea of fan ownership just simply because uh, some people may not be happy with the speckling effect. I think the speckling effect is super cool and modern and that it looks great. And I I just cannot wait to be at the new Plow Lane watching AFC Wimbledon in real life. I, I, I pray that day comes safely and comes soon. I also see that uh, in this this render, which looks very impressive. It looks like the most impressive football stadium I've ever seen. I, I think that may be more uh, the sort of angle that they've put it at than reality. Uh, but it looks like there's a bunch of like boxes. Like, yeah, there's some luxury boxes in the uh, luxury boxes in the central. Uh, the permanent stand has like some. If you yeah. want some climate control, right? I bet there'll be a variety of catering packages available. Exactly. Right, let's hope. So we don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's wonderful that they're building the stadium and hopefully uh, it will be complete soon and football will be ready to go with fans at some point. All right. Yes, please. Well, this week in Mars News, we are now less than a month away from the launch of Perseverance. Uh, really? It was originally scheduled, yeah, it was originally scheduled for July 17th, but there was a crane issue. Mm. So as happens, I've been so it got pushed back a, a few days to July 20th. Uh, shouldn't be an issue. The full launch window is, uh, of course, determined by uh, how close Mars and Earth are to each other. And this year that extends to August 11th. But if the launch ends up missing, missing that window, we will have to wait 26 months for oh, our wow. next chance. Oh. So. So we got to yeah. we got to get this done. This is the one. This is the one. Fingers very crossed. Uh it isn't the only mission aiming for this takeoff window. So this happens every 26 months. So Frequently, there are several Mars missions that all launch at the same time. Uh, there's the Hope uh, Mars mission being led by the United Arab Emirates. And there's Tianwen-1 uh, being led by China. And the ExoMars mission that's European Space Agency and Roscosmos led was scheduled for this year, but has been pushed back for those 26 months. So to 2022. As part of the finishing touches on Perseverance, JPL added an aluminum plate in honor of the healthcare workers here on Earth who've been working to fight COVID-19. Despite the slight launch delay on Earth's end, the rover is scheduled to land at Jezero Crater on February 18th, 2021. So just into the new year. So 
the the two dates I have to worry about because you know mm-hmm. that's how I like to approach life. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get this yeah. thing off the ground by August 11th mm-hmm. and we got to get it onto Mars in February. Yes. Uh, okay. So the, the day we're looking at is July 20th for, for launch right now. And if it's not launched by August, by August, you should start to gnaw on your fingernails a little bit. Uh, I, I I'll just tell not... you exactly how to worry, not just how much to worry, yeah, but I appreciate what, that. how to manifest it. Yes. I could not handle working on a project like that. I know. I couldn't. Just talking about it is freaking me out. Oh, so yeah. I, uh, yeah. Oh, that sounds really stressful, but I, I, I am hopeful mm-hmm. and I'm excited. It's a great moment every time when we have a launch like this and it's an even greater moment when the rover lands safely on Mars. So Mm -hmm. here's to more of that. Yes. Oh God. I always think there's no way I'm going to be able to watch that. And then I always end up watching it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. John, thank you for making a podcast with me. Thank you. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosianna Hals-Roas and Sheridan Gibson. Julia Bloom is our community coordinator. And the music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be awesome. awesome.